0: Well, in a June 2017 issue of The Baltimore Sun, Richard Gross authored an op-ed entitled I'm Afraid of Dying, and Apparently So Are You. And in his short piece, Gross is refreshingly honest. So he says, I'm deathly afraid of dying. The idea of no more Richard, that's his name, waves on me the older i get and i'm getting up there there's so much more to do so many more people to meet so much to see so much to live for so much more to know but there's no cure for aging he goes on to share the insights he has gleaned from others on how to face death calling a belief in an afterlife enviable He speaks of those who approach death religiously, or lightheartedly, or optimistically. And at the end, he ends with almost sort of like a verbal gasp gasp for hope, for meaning. He quotes Ernest Becker, the author of the book The Denial of Death, which won a Pulitzer in the 70s. Becker had said, This is the terror, to have emerged from nothing— To have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, and excruciating inner longing for hope and self-expression, and with all this yet to die, it seems like a hoax. I found Gross's op-ed refreshing because we all know a little bit of what he's feeling, I think. Death is just this formidable foe. It looms over even the joys we have in our life because we're reminded almost every day that sooner or later, this is just all going to go away. So what hope is left for us? Well, as we continue in our Advent series on why Jesus came, we come this afternoon to Hebrews chapter 2 and discover that Jesus came to destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're just going to read verses 14 and 15 for our study this afternoon. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. We don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews was, but whoever he was, this is what he says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." Those are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And as we read these two verses, I think we see them pretty nicely broken down into three sections. And those are going to be our three points this afternoon. So first, if you look at the first half of verse 14, we see Christ's incarnation. And then in the second half of verse 14, we see destruction. And finally, in, in the verse In the 15th verse, we see deliverance. So, incarnation, destruction, deliverance. So, let's begin by seeing incarnation. Look with me at verse 14. So, the author of Hebrews is speaking here of the children. And if you look in the preceding verse, these are those he's just referenced in a quote from Isaiah 8. Uh, They are those Jesus has come to save. And here we see that they share in flesh and blood. That is, they are human. This is our state as mankind, right? We are embodied creatures. We live and we move and we have our being in physical bodies covered with skin and nourished by blood supply. But we as mankind are also a race enmeshed in sin, Everyone who is born is born with a sin nature, this natural proclivity to turn away from God with every chance we get. And so God has enacted this grand rescue plan, and he has done this by sending his son, Hebrews 2.14 says, to share the same flesh and blood as sinful humanity as you and me. We read there that Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, this is the message of Christmas, right? God taking on flesh. We just sang about it. We'll keep singing about it. And This is a common Christmas message this season. We've already heard it perhaps dozens of times. But let's just remember how, how gobsmacking, to borrow a British phrase, this news is. We read there that God the Son, that he himself took on our flesh and blood. So let's just remember who this he himself is. And all we have to do to remember this is to survey some of the verses already written in this book. So flip with me back. If, if you have my Bible, you flip back one page to the very first verses of Hebrews. And there in verses 2 and 3, we see some titles, some realities about this son of God. The author of Hebrews says that he is the heir of all things. And then he says he's the one through whom God created the world. Then in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And and then last but not least, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one we're talking about. He's God of very God. He is the one without beginning and without end. He is the sustaining power behind all we know and all we see and all we feel. This is the one who Hebrews tells us has taken on our flesh and our blood and what Theologians have called for generations the incarnation, literally meaning enfleshment. Jesus taking on flesh. Think about it. See, when when God saw us in our sorry state of rebellion against him, When God saw us in the sorry state of lostness in our sin, when God saw us in our sorry state of condemnation in our wickedness, he didn't just send along well wishes with a note and a gift basket. He didn't just feel badly for us in our dismal state. No, he took on himself our state. What astonishing love. Since we, the needy sinners, were embodied, he also took on himself a body. He didn't lose any of his deity, any of his godness when he did so. But he added on to himself a human nature, a nature truly his own. The limitless became limited. The immense assumed boundaries The most powerful experienced weakness. The fully satisfied one knew hunger and pain and sadness. The one higher than the angels, as Hebrews has gone to full length to explain in the first couple chapters, took on our low estate. The king on the throne of the universe, born in a manger. As we sing in that modern Christmas hymn, joy has dawned, hands that set each star in place, shaped the earth in darkness, cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. And so church, just for this first point, just sit back and just remember the wonder of the incarnation. Who is this he himself? The the author of Hebrews is talking about in verse 14. Well, for one, in in verse 10 of chapter 2, he is Jesus, the one for whom and by whom all things exist. You exist, your very existence is for Jesus, and yet here he comes to join with your weakness. He takes on flesh and blood. What a profound act of grace and mercy. Christian, do you ever struggle to believe that God can really love you? Well, look at the extent to which he went to save you and bring you to himself. In the incarnation, God stoops low to raise us up. As one Irish church leader put it 400 years ago, this is the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. So we see the wonder of the incarnation here, right? But in keeping with our studies here in, in Advent about why Jesus came, that question still lingers. So he came, right? We, we know that. It's wonderful. It's fabulous. But, but why? Why did he come? Why did he take on flesh and blood? Well, let's go on and get the answer. The next point we have is destruction. Jesus came to destroy the author of Hebrews says Jesus took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus came to die, but he came with an expressed purpose to die a death that would destroy death. Through his death, he would defeat death itself, particularly the one having the power over death, that is, the devil. So the question for us then is, how in the world does the death of one man beat death for every other man, every other woman, every other child? And to answer that question, we need to kind of rewind real quick all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, right? So you remember, some of you will remember rewinding VHS cassettes to watch a movie, and it would take long, but if you got the super speeder rewinder like my grandma had, You could cut the time in half. Well, just rewind by picking up your Bible and just going like this. No rewinder needed to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis, we see God create a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect place. Everything is wonderful, there's no sin, there's no sadness, but there is a choice isn't there? God gives Adam a law. He's to enjoy all God's good creation except for one tree. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 3. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. What? Lest you die. So God gives Adam this law and he says if he doesn't eat of that tree but obeys God's good law, he will live forever and know God's glorious life eternally. No death. But you might know the story. The devil approaches Adam and his wife. He tempts them with this idea that they could be like God and that God is actually kind of a trickster and is kind of pull the wool over their eyes with this silly law that is trying to keep them subdued when they could actually be like him. And they listen. And they sin. And their sin against God in distrusting his law and elevating themselves against him brings, what do you think? Death. So look at Genesis 3, 19. God has cursed the serpent. He's cursed the woman, and then he places a curse on Adam and indeed all mankind. And how does it end in verse 19? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. Death has come. Death has come into the world because of sin. See, death is God's righteous judgment on our rebellion. Death is not natural. It's not part of the circle of life as it was originally created. It's tragic, really, how so many people at so many funeral services try to just soften death by just making it seem like a fitting end to a good life. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for celebration and kind words at a funeral, But I am saying, let's just face it. Funerals are terrible. Death is a terrible end to life. There's a reason why we're grieved and fearful when confronted with death. There's a reason people wear black to funerals. Death isn't good. It's not our friend. It's not natural. It's the result of sin. I was reading an article yesterday on the Huffington Post regarding how to think about the fear of death. And there are some good things, right? But one of the ways recommended was to learn to accept that death is natural. The author writes this, It helps to recognize ourselves as part of a great cycle and find comfort in the fact that everyone else must go through the same thresholds, conception, birth, and death. Granted, there's comfort in solidarity, I mean, it gives me some measure of comfort to know that y'all are going to die. Sorry. But think about it. The final solidarity we all share in death really just means that we're going to end all possibility of solidarity. So we are just going to die. Death separates us from all we know, all we love, all we cherish. And ultimately, that's just no comfort at all. Remember last year, or... (laughs) slip there remember this year back when all this started we sent out two books to y'all including remember death <laughs> wasn't that a great thing to get from your pastor before covid as covid started and, and in that that book matt mccullough writes this he says death is not the natural end to a merely biological life death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the creator designed by that same creator to make a point point." Death is a punishment for human pride, he says. It exposes our foolish confidence in our freedom to be whoever we want to be. Friends, there's a reason death hurts. It wasn't meant to be like this. Now, I can appreciate those who try to mitigate the pain of death by choosing to believe that death is simply the cessation of life and that we just kind of go back to nothing. So, Roger Ebert, the the late film critic, once said about his own death, he said, I know it's coming, and I do not fear it, because I believe there's nothing on the other side of death to fear. I hope to be spared as much pain as possible on the approach path. I was perfectly content before I was born, and I think of death as the same state. And friend, if you hold that same viewpoint, if you're here today or you're watching online, and you're like, yeah, that's kind of what I believe about death, I understand that. I mean, there's great comfort in that. But let me just ask you, is it true? I mean, so Ebert says it, and he says that he he likes to think of death that way. He says it's his belief, but that doesn't mean it's true. I mean, there's a lot of things I like to think of as a certain way. It doesn't mean it's true. What, What does God say about death? Perhaps on a more personal level, what does your own conscience say about death? I mean, can, can Hitler do everything he did and then just die? Dissipate into nothingness? Doesn't that strike your conscience as somehow just wrong or unjust? Mustn't there be judgment? Friend, I know there are many arguments for this. And I know that's just one little part of it you might not agree with the, the legitimacy of that point but let me just ask you to consider if this is your viewpoint does the christian understanding of why death is in the world make more sense of the world that you've experienced than the purely materialistic explanation of a roger ebert i wonder And church death is the lot of sinful mankind It's been around ever since the first man set himself up against God in his sin. Sin and death exist in tandem with each other. So what we need then is not someone to just commiserate with us in our plight. We don't need someone to just come alongside us us with sweet nothings to say that death isn't terrible. We need someone to come and beat death for us. That's the only comfort we're going to get. We need another Adam. That's why Jesus came in flesh and blood. So he could be the second Adam. He came to die for our sins so our death could die. This is the logic of Paul in Romans chapter 5. So if you've your Bibles, you can switch, swi- um, s- swipe over or turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. There Paul says, sin came into the world through one man. That's Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's plain. Death came because of sin. This is the plight of humanity. So what do we do? And then Paul in verse 17 starts to talk about a second Adam. He says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die so that through his death, death might die. See, Jesus didn't just die, he rose again. Death couldn't hold him. He was the pure and spotless sacrifice. And so when he died, God judged all our sin on him and condemned him. And then he rose again, showing that he had the power as God in the flesh to conquer our sin and defeat our death. See, ever since the beginning, Satan's favorite tool of condemnation for sinners was death. Death's power, death's sting, is the condemnation of sinners in our sin and damnation to hell forever to bear the full weight of all we've done wrong. That's the sting in death. But when Jesus came, he de-stinged death because he forgave our sin. He separated our sin from us. He bore it on himself. And separated it from us as far as the east is from the west. How far can east and west go? Infinite lengths. That's how far Jesus has spread our sin from us. And he bears it on himself so that death now has no claim on us. Jesus' death disenfranchised death. Death no longer has a voice in this matter. We're free. And friends, when sin was judged on the perfect Son of God at the cross, death began to unravel. We see this in Matthew chapter 27 and how even as Jesus died, tombs were opened and dead men resurrected, appearing to many. No, death is not natural. But Jesus came to undergo the curse of death so we could know life. Friends, this is the only explanation in the world for why death is so hard. It's hard because it's judgment. It's condemnation. But there's hope. There's hope in Jesus. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a Christian, turn to the one who was condemned for you. Trust in him and death will lose its sting in your life. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, fellow Christian, do you see God's incredible plan to bring you to himself? I mean, think about it. He took the greatest sin ever committed, the crucifixion of his son. And he used that sin, that murder, to murder sin. To destroy our enemy, the devil. I wonder, do you think he knows what he's doing in your life this year? This has been a hard year. And at times, all of us have at one point or another wondered if God's plan for our lives this year was good. Christian, if you're wondering if you can trust God, look at the cross, where the worst thing that ever happened was for your good. I think it's safe to say God has a good plan going for you, Christian. Only a sovereign king can use death to beat death. You can trust this king. All right, incarnation, destruction. Let's conclude then with deliverance in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Jesus died so he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that all mankind, all those who have flesh and blood, are prisoners to the fear of death. This is a life sentence. There's no opportunity for parole. No hope until Jesus came. See, if you think about it, physical death is still very much present in our lives. Christians who believe Jesus has conquered their death still die. But now, something fundamental has shifted in their death. Their physical death is now not an ushering into eternal judgment, but an ushering into eternal joy. That's what God has done. He has taken death, which by the way still hurts a lot, even for the Christian, and he has promised that our physical death is the very last bad thing that will ever happen to us. And in fact, it will usher us into glory to be with him forever. Jesus has rescued the captives of the fear of death. He's the conquering king, leading his people out of fear of death prison into glorious triumph. At his first advent, Jesus' death struck a fatal blow to Satan. And at his second advent, Jesus is going to destroy him forever. And in the meantime... For us as Christians, church family, we must mourn death. We must weep with those who weep, but we must not weep as those who have no hope. Jesus died under judgment so that you, Christian, can die under grace. He died your death for you so that your death is an entrance to life. For you, Christian, the grim reaper has been squashed by the great redeemer. And so for you, Christian, the grim reaper has turned into the grand conductor, issuing you into eternal bliss. Take that, Satan. Take that, death. Jesus has won. Your sting has been removed. Satan, your power has been vanquished. And yet, Christian, we still remain here between two advents. Satan's days are numbered, but he's still prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Our sin has been conquered at the cross, but man, is it ever so present to tempt us. So that means we still struggle not to fear death, don't we? The fear of death has lost its grip on us, as in Christ Alone says that wonderful hymn, but we still struggle with it. And if nothing else, this current pandemic has spotlighted the potential to fear for death in our lives. So, how ought we to live as Christians between the two advents of Christ? How ought we to confront temptation to fear death? Death. Four brief points of application as we close. And when I say brief, I mean brief. So you can write them down. Four brief points of application as we close. Christian, Jesus has delivered you from the fear of death. So how should you fight temptation to that fear when it raises its ugly head in your life? One, reflect on the death of Christ. So if Jesus' death on the cross, according to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, is what has defanged the power of death in your life, de-stinged it of its power, then you must meditate on it all the time. I mean, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Journal it. Write it out. Review the gospel often. Become even more aware of its Truth and the intricacies of theology in it. Rehearse the old, old story and tell it. Reflect on the death of Christ. Two, reflect on your death. Stare at it point blank in the face. And then bring the death of Christ to bear on your fear of your impending demise. Matt McCullough writes this in his book, Remember Death. He says, death is not okay. By avoiding the subject of death, we act like that's not true. And we shrink down the scale of Jesus' victory to fit the world we live in now. Friends, believe that the cross has changed everything, and in doing so, don't be afraid of considering your own mortality. Remember and reflect on your death. Third, and we talked about this last week, die daily. (laughs) Practice dying. This is what the Apostle Paul said he did every day. He died. He died to himself. Christian, die to yourself and live to Christ. Lay aside your own rights and privileges to serve others. That's going to prepare you for your own death because it's going to prepare you for the kingdom of heaven where you're going to spend eternity particularly when it comes to evangelism. Die to yourself and share the gospel with others. People all around you are terrified of dying. And you have a message of hope. Go give it to them. Die daily. And finally, look to Christ's return. Look to Christ's return. Jesus loves you and he's coming back for you. as Paul writes in Romans 8, neither death nor life will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's coming back, and he's promised he's going to keep you until he comes back. So as we will sing in a moment, look forward to the return of Christ, and merry gentlemen, married gentlewomen, be at rest. Don't be dismayed. Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And one day, Christ, our Savior, will descend on Judgment Day to save us all fully, finally, and forevermore. Reflect on the death of Christ. Reflect on your death. Die daily and look to the return of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that I need this sermon as much as anybody else. I confess that I often fear death. I often doubt your triumph over death, and so I need your help. So Lord, as a church, help us to cling to the hope we have in Jesus. Make us bold, courageous, and fearless when death comes. We pray for those we love, those we know, those we have yet to know who are living even now in constant dread of death. Lord, may we have the boldness and love to go to them with this message of hope from Hebrews two fourteen and 15, of a Savior who has inexplicably taken on their weakness so that he could inexplicably die their death and beat the power of death that has subjected them to lifelong slavery. We pray these things in the glorious name of the triumphant King, Jesus, the Death Slayer. In his name we pray, amen.